welcome, welcome, welcome here to worship at the well. We're so glad that you have joined us here on this wonderful Sunday. Uh, we're going to continue on in our series uh, here, week number four of this series, How To. How To. This entire series we've been addressing and talking about how the church is supposed to be the example of Christ to the lost and dying world around us. We've covered topics like how do we love one another. We're going to be addressing how we forgive one another. But today, I want to talk about a very difficult topic in, in the church, and that is restoration. How do we restore one another? So if you are not there, please turn me to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Now, if you have lived for any length of time, you have probably had the unpleasant and maybe embarrassing experience of falling in some way, shape, or form in the public setting. Anybody ever fallen in public before? Doesn't matter how, but you've fallen in public. Whether you trip or you slip, you stumble, or you just completely wipe out in public. And when you do, when that happens to you, oftentimes people don't know whether to laugh, to look away, or to help you. Now, I want to share with you a story of something that occurred in my life probably about five or six years ago. Uh, my wife and I, our family, was, was ministering in Florida, and uh, my mentor and, and best friend, uh, Chad, he and I were on our way to a conference, and we were about to meet uh, with probably 20 or 30 other pastors. We were trying to, uh, to put this event together to impact our community, and I had on a very, very nice outfit um, some nice khaki pants that were expensive, these really nice dress shoes that my wife had just bought me, and then I had on a white button-up collared shirt. It had rained for three days leading up to this point, and I remember we met in this very huge parking lot. There was a restaurant. We had gotten there, uh, this room, this conference room there at this restaurant, and I was walking up and over uh, the mulch pile that was on top of the landing, and my foot hit the side of it, and I slipped, and I skid about 15 feet from where I was. Now, instantly, uh, my mentor, who I have forgiven him for this, laughed. He instantly laughed at me and was like, ah! and he just couldn't stop. Well, there were people everywhere in this parking lot. And so people start to rush to my aid because when I had hit, I had hit concrete very hard. And I instantly had a shock of pain in my spine. And I knew that I would not be able to get up on my own. And every person that reached their hand out to me, I rejected. I rejected them helping me for about Two or three minutes, which seemed like an eternity in my eyes, my pants were wet. My shirt had a mud on it. I was just furious. There was no way for us to go home. Eventually, I was helped up, and, and I allowed for myself uh, to drop the pridefulness within me. And these men reached down, and they lifted me completely up. Now, it is one thing to fall and injure ourselves physically. It's, a, it's one thing to embarrass ourselves, but what happens when we fall morally and spiritually? What happens? Because people fall, and while physically there is pain, the pain of falling spiritually and morally is often far worse than any physical pain that we may ever suffer in this world. Now, I, I want to tell us before we dive too deep into this, there's going to be some pretty strong statements that I make uh, this morning on this topic, first and foremost, falling happens to the best of us. 
Falling happens. Amen, church? Falling happens to the best of us. Great men and women of the Bible, great men and women of yesteryear have fallen. Now, we all can find ourselves in situations and circumstances that we never planned, that we never wanted. Now, I want to make this statement to you, and I don't want you to forget it. We do not fall intentionally. We did not fall intentionally. We did not wake up this morning saying, you know what? I want to fall into some deep, dark sin. That's not happened. It doesn't happen intentionally. In fact, it is normally an accident. It is, we get caught off guard. We're not being careful. We're not being alert, or we're acting like we could never fall into that sin. But the, the true physical and spiritual nature that we see here is that no one really sets out to fall. It was Paul who wrote to the church in, in 1 Corinthians, Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Church, I want you to write this down. No one is immune from getting caught up and overtaken in sin. No one. No one is immune from getting caught up and overtaken in sin. I was reading some statistical reports this last weekend, and according to the Urban Ministry Institute, I'm, I'm talking nobody, no one is immune, not even spiritual ministry leaders, not even pastors are immune, church. According to the Urban Ministry Institute, 1,500 pastors and ministry leaders will leave ministry before the end of 2022 due to infidelity. 1,500 we, we have less than 90 days left in this year, and they say 1,500 ministry leaders and pastors will leave ministry due to infidelity. Now, I want to urge us today, as we begin to dive in and read here in just a moment, I want to urge us and encourage us to hear the words of Scripture. There's a great need today in the church of Jesus Christ, and we have been called to restore one another. We've been called to restore. So if you would look at verse number 1, chapter 6. Of Galatians, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Now, I want to stop right here at the end of verse 1. Paul's wording here speaks not of a determined and hardened sinner. In fact, the idea is of someone who has fallen into sin, finding themselves trapped in a place that they never thought that they would be. The, the overtaken one now needs to be restored by the church. They are not to be ignored. They are not to be excused. They are not to be, the Christian's favorite one, destroyed. The goal here is always restoration. The job of restoration is often, though, neglected by the church. We have a, t a tendency to pretend as though the sin never happened. Or we have a tendency to react so harshly towards the one who has sinned. The balance between these two extremes can only be negotiated by the spiritual thing. Only. And it should be normal, church. It's not going to hit the screen for you, but I want you to please don't miss this. It should be normal to do what God says right here in this building. It should be normal it's all too easy to respond to somebody's sin with gossip, with harsh judgment, or even an undiscerning approval in our attitude. Restoration must always be done in a spirit of gentleness, with full understanding, church, of our own weaknesses and our own corruption as sinners. Those doing the restoring must 
guard themselves against the temptation of pridefulness as well as guarding themselves against the same temptation that the overtaken one struggles with. Now, if you would look with me at verse number two and see what Paul continues to say. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Verse number four, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. Now we're going to stop right there for today. Here Paul begins to expand on this idea and encourage every Christian to bear one another's burdens. Now I want you to not, please do not miss this this morning. I would, I would like for you to all quit writing, to get off the phones. I want you to look up here for just a second. The focus of Paul here is not on the expectation of others to bear my burdens. Did you hear me? The, the Paul's idea here is not that I expect everyone else to bear my burdens. In fact, the focus is, is completely opposite. If we take that, that everyone should bear my burdens, then we become self-focused, which always leads to prideful, pridefulness, and it always leads to frustration and discouragement and depression. In fact, pride is what prevents us from bearing one another's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ in the first place. And so it's often pride that keeps us from ministering to one another the way that we should. But I don't want you to misunderstand what pride truly is in a biblical sense. Because pride does not necessarily say that I am better than you. Oftentimes, pride simply says that I am more important than you are, so I deserve more of my own time. But instead, God is always directing us here to be others focused. He's always saying, bear one another's burdens. Certainly we all need to help and reach lost sinners. Amen, church? That was pretty weak. But equally as important as, as reaching lost sinners is the responsibility of restoring fallen saints. You know, one of the reasons that we need to be a part of a church is because one day we're all going to need help. One day, we will need someone to help restore us. Listen, you may not fall morally, but the reality is, is that one day you're going to feel the weight of everyday life problems. As the text says, your burden, your own load of life's problems will get heavy, and you're going to need someone to assist you in them. You're going to be tempted. More than likely, you will probably give in now and again to those temptations. And you may find yourself struggling in your relationship with God and others, including your marriage and even with your children, whether they are adults or not. Church, Christian in here, friend, loved one, I've been in ministry long enough to know that we all struggle. We all struggle. People that act like they have it all together are the people that don't have it all together. Those are those people. No one from Scripture, no one is an island unto themselves. And the natural response is to act like I did that day as I laid on the ground in the parking lot and initially rejected help 
from those people. That's the initial response of the sinner. I mean, do you know how stupid I looked laying there on the ground rejecting the help of people? Do you know how prideful I looked that moment in time in front of probably 30 or 40 people gathering around, a grown man refusing people when I clearly needed help getting off of the ground? You see, some of you are here And the truth about your life is that you need help, but you act like you don't. You refuse it. Your your pride pushes people away, and you won't let people in. You know, in the end, you will find that you can't do life without the help of other believers. That the church was to be a place where people could find hope and help and healing. And as Christians, we're all interconnected. And we're all interdependent on one another. And so the first thing I want us to see this morning is that restoring one another is a family responsibility. Restoring one another is a family responsibility. Do you know in closing out his letter to the church at Galatia, Paul completely switches gears and takes a different tone. It was not but two chapters before this that Paul was calling these Christians foolish He was saying, you foolish Galatians, and now he's speaking directly to the heart, and he's addressing them right out of the gate as brothers. He's saying brothers. He's addressing this term as one of family. It's a relational word, saying that there is an interdependence among those that name the name of Jesus Christ. And that principle, in fact, church is taught all throughout Paul's writings in the New Testament. The dynamic of fellowship is what should separate the church from the world. Amen? You know, we should be giving people a reason to want to become a part of the New Testament body of believers. It was Paul who wrote to the church at Corinth, and he said, whether one member suffers, all members suffer in it. And one member be honored, then all members rejoice in that honor. You know, there's a point here that in a family, there's going to be problems, amen? How many of you have a family that has no problems? Raise your hand. Okay, Great. How many of you have a problem in your family right now? All three of you. Great. Let's not be pious in church. You know, there are family issues that need to be worked through and dealt with. And at any point in our walk from our salvation to our glorification, we can be caught and overtaken by sin. It happens. No family is perfect. And every family has issues. Even God's family has issues. We all have the potential to fail and to fall, to be caught off guard and not realize the severity of our sinful choices until it is too late and we end up broken. We end up hurting and in need of someone to come and help us. Do you know here in the text... Look back with me at verse number one. He says, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. I want us to to pause. I want us to pause for just a moment. This this word restore here comes from the Greek word katerisos, which means to mend. To mend or to reset a broken bone. And so a fallen family member here within these four walls, even if they're not attending here today, is like a broken bone in the body that needs to be restored to full health. If my wife or one of my children, one of our our four kids, were to come to me with a problem and in pain, their pain becomes my pain because I love them. 
Imagine if I told them, go to somebody else to deal with your problem because I don't want to. Not only would that be unloving, okay? Not only, not only would that be painful for them, but ultimately it would be unchristlike for me because I'm, I'm skirking out on my responsibilities. When we run away from helping those in this family who are ignoring people in pain and, and, and with problems, we are not acting like the family of God. We're telling people there's no help for you here. Do you know the expression... Paul used, if anyone is caught in any transgression, identifies those people that get away from the control of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Paul, Paul had just explained a few verses prior to this what spirit-controlled lives look like. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn with me back to chapter number 5. Look what he says in verse 22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, and with it its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. You know, it's interesting that Paul never tells us what is so common to do in our age, and that is to self-righteously look at the sin of another and, and look at our brother's faults and laugh, to walk away. In fact, we are to engage in the act of restoration according to Scripture. It's the Christian's responsibility and a task that falls upon the church to do with those that are living apart from divine control. You know, I think we have a lot of tattletales in churches today. Uh, we, we have those people that see the problem in their brother and sister. They watch it unfold and they do nothing about it. Maybe even gossip. Or then they run and they just tell the pastor. That's oftentimes what happens in the church. Sometimes we act just like the Pharisees did. You remember a few weeks ago when, when we studied out John chapter 8 and, and we looked at the woman who was caught in adultery? You know, the Pharisees brought the woman to Jesus. They are the tattletales here in the story. And she was caught in the very act of adultery. And they wanted to see how Jesus was going to handle the situation. I mean, according to the law, she should have been stoned and put to death. And, and so, so should the man. But Jesus didn't stone her. He just starts writing in the sand. And the more the Pharisees pressed, the more he wrote. And finally, he says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he keeps writing. And they all leave. And Jesus turns to this woman and he says, where are your accusers? Who condemns you? she looks around and she says no man Lord and Jesus says neither do I he says neither do I and then this is where the restoration occurs he says go and sin no more restoration occurred in a situation Jesus was not interested in destroying and crushing her spirit that day in fact he knew the guilt and the shame that she would have to deal with for the rest of her life if she did but he wanted her to experience grace and restoration and he wanted to encourage her to live a different life i wonder if we've forgotten 
that peace in our walk with the Lord. I wonder if we've forgotten the encouragement to, to, to people to live differently because of truth. So, Pastor, how does, how does that have anything to do with the text that we just read here in Galatians? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I'm going to tell you the answer. Do you know the church here in, in Galatians had, had the same problem? The exact same problem. You know, many churches are plagued today with the exact same problem. We have all the spiritual truth we need, but we often want to use the law to crush people than we do to restore them. You know, some Christians would rather see an erring brother or sister pay for their sin and watch them suffer than to get involved in the restoration process. I had a very good friend who was a pastor and uh, had been in ministry for nearly 35 years and, and took over um, a church, was, was actually brought in to take over a church that was dealing with a lot of issues and problems. And about three or four years in, um, the church just tried to eat this pastor alive. Um, he came to me one day and, and he said, if I ever fall into sin, Josh, I pray I don't fall into the hands of the critical judges in the church. He said, I hope I fall to the barkeeper and the street walker and the dope peddler because the church people would tear me apart with their long, wagging, gossipy tongues cutting me to shreds. And I thought to myself in that moment of time, how sad not just because he's a pastor, but because he's a believer in Jesus Christ. And that's how he felt about the other believers in, in Christ that were around him. Church, I don't want you to, to miss this. It's always easier to write people off than it is to restore them. It's always easier to write people off than it is to restore them. Why do you think the verses preceding the command to restore are very clear and precise in Paul's writing? Well, because all the way back in Paul's day and in our day today, churches become judgmental halls for the condemned instead of hospitals for sinners. There, there's a cry here in Scripture from the Apostle pleading for what we call spiritual surgery to occur in the life of the church. He says, you who are spiritual, do the restoration. You who are spiritual, do the restoration. You know, it's a cry here in Scripture, yet again, for spiritual maturity to occur, to help those in need, to restore them. And while it is a family responsibility to restore our brothers and sisters, there is a requirement in that restoration process. And so the second thing I want us to see is that restoration requires spiritual maturity. Restoration requires spiritual maturity. You know, the, the reality is, is that restoration should only be done by spiritual people. People who are living out the principles and the teachings that we just addressed in Galatians chapter 5. You know, several years ago, I would say probably more than 10 years ago, um, our pastor's son broke his arm in two places while he was playing football. And the break was very, very bad to say the least. And I remember that they had to take him to one of the local hospitals uh, near where our church was. And they got there and, and they went through the ER process. And, 
And they got to a room and they took x-rays and the doctor walks in and, and he tells them, we can't perform the surgery that your son needs because we don't have a qualified surgeon here to do it. And I remember the nearest hospital that they were going to send him to was over 50 minutes away. And so they went 50 minutes to this hospital and it just so happened this hospital had an orthopedic surgeon. And he did what the other doctors at the other hospital were unable to do. And he fixed their son's arm. He mended the arm. Do you know what's amazing to me? Is that that family was in the right place to get the help for their son that he needed. He was in a hospital. They had doctors. They had equipment. But no one there could really help him. Sadly, today... Many, church, many people go to churches for help, but there is no one spiritual enough to really help them. Well, we think, call the pastor. We think, call the deacon board. We, we think, call the, the leader of the ministry. Church, the letter is addressed to the entire family. Not just the pastor, not just the deacon, not just the, the leader of the specific ministry. You don't need a seminary degree to help somebody. You don't need to graduate Bible college to help people. You just need to be spiritual. In fact, I know people who have Bible degrees and like those doctors at the first hospital can't really help anybody at all. But I also know people who have never stepped foot into a Bible college and have no formal Bible training and they have the heart and the mind of a spiritual surgeon and they are more to people than the supposed qualified Unfortunately, I, I share this with you. There came a crossroads in my life probably 12 years ago when I realized that I was qualified to pastor, when I realized that I was gifted and I had talent and ability, but I was never really helping anybody in ministry. I, I could see the problem in people. But I was more into dealing with the problem than I was helping to restore the person. I had the skill, but I was not spiritual. Church, the, the danger that we face as believers is that we have heads full of information, but hearts that are indifferent. The danger that every one of us faces in this room, in the balcony, online, is that we have heads full of information, but hearts that are indifferent. A spiritual person does something vastly different than the unspiritual. They give God's solution to the problem. They give God's solution. They get personally involved in the person's life. And those people that helped me that day in that parking lot, those people that helped me up off of the ground, they didn't yell at me because I had fallen. They didn't scold me because I walked over the mulch pile. They came, they reached out their hand, and they lifted me up. I remember being embarrassed that I couldn't even put two words together that day. I was encouraged 
by these men who were gentle and these men who were very humble that they got to lift me up. The text tells us that we are to restore in meekness or in some versions gentleness. And that word meekness or, or gentleness is, is, is the Greek word preutres which means humility in gentleness. Humility in gentleness. You, when you and I are in pain, we want people to feel that pain with us. We want people to be able to address the problem when we're in the midst of that pain. A spiritual person knows the problem, feels the pain, but here's the key. They apply biblical principles to the problem. They apply biblical principles. They bring God's truth to bear on the situation, knowing that that is the only solution to the problem. I want you to write this down, and I don't want you to forget it. I want it tattooed upon our hearts as a church. Biblical principles are more important than our personal feelings. Amen, church? Biblical principles are more important than our personal feelings. You know, a couple of years ago, I got pretty sick. I had a sinus infection. I had a double ear infection, both at the same time. And my wife, um, she's not up here, so um, my wife harassed me for 10 straight days to go to the doctor, and I wouldn't listen. You would think after 16 years of being together, um, I would listen to my wife. Um, it still doesn't happen. Um, she begged me and and. and nagged me for for 10 straight days to go to the doctor and I finally broke down as we were sitting in a church service and I was on the front row sitting right next to our subwoofer and above it the speaker and I could hear nothing out of my one ear nothing at all and so she got me to go and she took me to the doctor and we went to the 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 clinic and and I walk in and my doctor walks in and and she could see that I was miserable, and she goes, Josh, what medications are you taking? And I was like, this and this and this, and it was everything over the counter. And she looked right at me in a very cynical and yet uh, joking way, and she goes, how's that working out for you? And instantly I wanted to start screaming, like, give me something that will make me better! And I was like, it's, it's not, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. And she goes on to say, well, here's what we have to do. I have to give you the shot. I have to give you this prescription. You have, to, you have to shoot this stuff up your nostril three times a day. You have to take this antibiotic. You have to take this steroid. She said, and you'll feel better in a few days. I walked away from that. That day I walk out, my wife looks at me and she goes, what did the doctor say? And I said that I'm sick and I need to be babied. I started to get better after those two days, and I realized for just a moment that every commercial that I saw on TV for cold and flu medicine, and every person I talked to in the Walgreens or the CVS was giving me information that they thought was right, but it was until I went to the right person and I got the right information that I got true help. We have people who want help, but they always go to the wrong person to get it. Because spiritual people can be very hard to find. Too many believers are settling for someone else's bad advice. 
It's something that I call bad medicine in the Christian world. It's bad medicine. We have too many over-the-counter Christians. Too many just writing out scripts that may sound good to us. They may share some secular philosophy or some worldly psychology. And you know what? We may even feel better for just a little while. But the sick and the hurting and the fallen people, they need a strong dose of biblical theology, church. They need a strong dose of spiritual principles and doctrinal instructions administered by someone who is spiritual. You know what a spiritual person and a surgeon have in common? They know that the person they're helping could be them. They know that it could be them in that situation. It could be reversed, and so they are considerate, meaning that they know the danger, and in doing their duty, they keep themselves alert and humble and sensitive. They're cautioned, they're careful in how they help people. But I don't want us to sit here this morning and think that being spiritual makes us exempt from sin. Because it doesn't. You want to know what else a spiritual person and a surgeon have in common? They fix the problem, but they don't take the problem away. They fix the problem, but they don't take it away. Well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, look back at verse number 5. He says, for each one will have to bear his own load. Each one will have to bear his own load. You know, in life, all of us are going to have burdens and issues that seem too much to bear alone. We need to bear one another's burdens, but we also have our own load to carry. And every, have you ever been in, in, in a place or have you ever heard the word rehab? Raise your hand if you've heard the, the word rehab before. Part of the restoration process is rehabilitation. Part of restoring is rehabilitation. You know, our pastor's son went to that orthopedic surgeon and he had that surgery and he told his boy, he said, if you ever want to play football again, you need to do these exercises every single day. And he gave him this whole list of exercises. And as he's walking out of that room that day, the doctor says, I've done my part, now you have to do yours. I've done my part, now you have to do your spiritual people. They will, they will share the burden, but they will never take the load that is yours to bear. Why? Why do they not do that? Well, because we've all been given a God-given responsibility to fulfill the calling and role that each one of us have in this life. And here's the reality. A spiritual person can help you, but a spiritual person can help you. They can help you be a better father, they can help you be a better mother. They can help you be a better husband and a better wife, but they can't take your place in the home. That's your burden. That's your load. That's your job. That's your responsibility. As your pastor, I can help you be better Christians. I can counsel you. I can disciple you. I can invest into you. I can be a part of the restoration process when someone falls, but I can't live the Christian life for you. I can't. That, that's your load to bear. That's your responsibility. You know, Christ told the woman to go and sin no more. And so God is calling us as a church to be spiritual, but he's also calling us to help restore our fallen family members. To help restore them. And so I want to close 
a little differently today than what we typically would. Because really there's two challenges. There's two challenges for us as a body. The challenge of making a commitment to being spiritual people. Or maybe you're in here this morning and you need to be restored in some form or fashion here in the church. Maybe, maybe there's um, conflict between you and another. Maybe there's unforgiveness that's occurred. Maybe there's some sinful action that has led to hurting another here in the body. And so really there's two challenges here today. And so I'm going to ask us as a body to respond to those challenges. Now for those who are our guests in here uh, today, um, it is up to you whether you respond. But this is specifically for our church family, for our regular attenders and members here at the well. There are two challenges for us. There's the one who will rise from their seat and come and get alone with God that will be on this side over here saying, I'm going to commit to being a spiritual spiritual person here in this church, and I want to be a, a part of restoration as it occurs. That, that's, that's the one challenge. The other is the one who's willing to come forward and, and say, I need to be restored, and I want to pray with somebody about it. And we're going to have our prayer team right up here for you and make, you, make, make them available um, to you. And so those are the two things, two, two opportunities to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit and the truth that's been spoken in this place today.